Let me begin reading in verse 10. It says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, that those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And let's conclude there. Father, we thank you for the help of your Holy Spirit to worship you as we should in spirit and in truth. And Lord, as we've sang and prayed and expressed our worship to you, even in the gathering together and fellowship with one another as your family, we just pray you'd help us to continue now in our worship as we open the word of God. And we just look to the power and the help of your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts as we study the scripture. So Lord, you know what we need to hear. We pray every purpose and intent behind why you inspired this part of your word would find its proper place and speak to us in a personal and direct way this morning. Speak now by your spirit, Lord, we ask together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, part of married life, and I can say this with credibility after 25 years, includes some disagreements. And part of family life, whether your immediate family or your secondary family, at times involves disputing over things on different occasions. And yes, part of being a church family also includes having differences among our views as well, which can even lead, from what I've seen, to disagreements, to quarrels, even temptations at times among the church towards division. And today's passage addresses this directly, instructing us regarding it going on in the early church and how to some degree to deal with it when it arises. Paul now begins here in verse 10 to begin to address the first problem among this local church in Corinth, and that is, as I've said before, that they were struggling to a great degree with really the immature attitude of self-centeredness. And this immature attitude of self-centeredness was causing strong disagreements and disputes and even division among the church family there in Corinth. And this needed to be corrected because it threatened not only the health of the church, but it also jeopardized the testimony of the church in the community. If you remember, Jesus himself, our Lord, was the one who said, a house divided against itself, he said, will not stand. In other words, division among any household, biological or spiritual, is never a good or a healthy thing. So Paul, therefore, says to us in verse 10, let's look at the text. He says, now I plead or beg with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak, he says, the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly or completely joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. He says, for it's been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, 
from those of Chloe's household that there are contentions among you. And then he gives a description, verse 12. Some are saying, I am of Paul, or others, I am of Apollos, or others, I am Cephas, and some even saying, we're just of Christ and Christ alone. So Paul identifies the unhealthy issue that's happening among them as a church. And then he also, in these verses, gives some instruction regarding resolving the conflicts and the relational problems that were going on. So what I want to first do is let's look first at the issue itself that was happening among them that was causing the disputes and the divisions. And then afterwards, we'll look at the instruction Paul gives to correct it. He first identifies the issue in verse 11, where he simply says there that it has been reported to him from some in Chloe's household that there are at this current time in the church of Corinth, he says, contentions going on among the church family. Now, Chloe's household, no doubt, was located in Corinth, and they were a part of the church of Corinth. Paul, at this time himself, we know historically, is actually in the city of Ephesus, doing ministry in that city there. So apparently, during some type of a trip, let's say, a visitation, where some, whether servants or family members of Chloe's household, went over to the area of Ephesus, and they visited with Paul, or maybe they attended the church of Ephesus for a church service, and Paul recognized them, and maybe Paul inquired, hey, how are things going at the church of Corinth? So good to see you guys. Or maybe they themselves just being so concerned for the glory of Christ and the health of the church, not trying to be tattletales, but really genuinely concerned, brought to Paul's attention on their own initiative that there were some real issues of contention and division going on back at the church of Corinth. And maybe they're asking Paul for some help as a respected leader. The bottom line is no matter how the diagnosis of the problem came to the surface, the important thing is that this was addressed rather than ignored and kind of just being brushed under the carpet, which is a very common thing that people have a tendency to do, whether in their marriages, their families, and quite honestly, from my, I've seen, even in the church from time to time, is rather than address an issue, people just kind of tend to act like it doesn't exist. And look, in the same way with the health in our own bodies, Hiding a relational problem never helps to get it resolved. All it does is let it continue to grow like cancer until it just does more and more damage and brings a lot of destruction long term. It's much better to address the issue to give there some degree of chance to work on resolution. And if anybody should have a better success at resolution, it should be Christians with the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and knowing how we are supposed to relate to one another in conflict resolution. But Paul says here in verse 11, it's been declared, he says the word, that there are contentions among you. Contentions, plural. And that word contention speaks of heated disagreements or actual quarrels going on between people. Intense issues where people are battling over their different stances on a particular matter. Now, because individuals have differences of opinions on a subject that they may strongly hold on to, that sometimes can cause us to end up disputing over trying to prove that we are right in our given conviction or our opinion or viewpoint and someone else is wrong. And that's what was actually happening in the church of Corinth among the church family. Now, I know it's really hard to envision it, but try and put on your imagination cap this morning 
that in the church there were actually people who had different opinions on subjects. Christians who actually loved Jesus but had very different viewpoints on various matters, theologically, on social issues, on ideas of what is right and what is wrong, different perspectives, even different preferences and preferences of style on how things should be done or how things shouldn't be done. Ultimately, it led to verbal disputes over such ideas and even heated quarrels. Yet the human problem that happens in the world that causes people to quarrel over the same stuff can find its way becoming a challenge as well, even among the church. From the earliest days, it was happening in the church of Corinth, and it leads to, unfortunately, unhealthy atmosphere and even can cause pretty severe divisions at times among relationships even in God's family, because the devil would love nothing more than to just manipulate all of our selfish human tendencies to cause us to make issues and differences much bigger than what they are and to bring division and separation among relationships. Look, the devil understands probably just as much or better than anybody that a house divided against itself won't stand. And so he will gladly get the troops fighting among one another. It makes his work a whole lot easier. You notice he mentions there in verse 10, when we read it, Paul uses the word that there were divisions among them. And that word divisions, when you look at the original language, speaks of the tearing of fabric or the ripping of nets. The idea is something, whether fabric or a net, that one time worked together in, in unison as a unit Something has happened that has caused it to be torn and to be pulled apart and now damaged as a result. And so its function is not as healthy. And this is the image that's used there with the word divisions. This church had lost its unity and the family had become divided and separated. And they had allowed their differences of ideas, as well as, quite frankly, their stubborn pride to tear them apart, as we can tell, into little groups Groups whereby they were convinced they were right and others who didn't have the same idea must be wrong. And they actually began to break into little camps. In fact, Paul identifies one of the main areas of contention among the church is they actually had began to form like little party clans among the church itself. And they were kind of fighting almost like political groups and little party clans. They were fighting over promoting whose ideals were right. And it seemed to be the most important conversation and the most important thing to many of them. Paul describes it in verse 12 there. He says that there were one group that were saying, I am of Paul, where the idea is we are followers of Paul. Now that's understandable. Paul was the founding pastor of the church of Corinth. He was the one who brought the gospel there. He had led them from the start, and many were devoted to him just because of probably long-term commitment to him in relationship. Paul was very knowledgeable spiritually. He had a really strong grasp on scripture. Paul was a very strong leader among the people, and those who liked, you might say, just a good, solid biblical teaching and liked strong leadership and a focus on the grace of God, they preferred Paul. And so they said, Paul is who we adhere to and who we look to as our leader. But another, he says, others in the camp were saying, no, 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 we're of Apollos. We choose to follow Apollos. Now, Apollos had come to Corinth 
and ministered there after Paul. And we know from Acts 18, the Bible says Apollos was a very eloquent man. He was a very gifted and powerful man in speech. That is, Apollos was an excellent communicator. And apparently, we know from chapter 2, 1 Corinthians, Paul didn't seem to be a real excellent communicator. He seemed to have a solid knowledge of the word of God and a spiritual anointing from the Lord. But he himself confesses that he wasn't very good with being eloquent and wise and putting together catchy phrases. And and Paul acknowledges his own weakness in communication. Apollos was the contrast to that. He was an excellent communicator, very charismatic in style. He seemed to have been very kind of energetic in personality. And he spoke with great passion and had a real gift to kind of stir people up and get people enthusiastic about the things he was speaking about or the Lord. So if you liked a stimulating communicator, understandable, then Apollos was your guy. If you like to be fired up spiritually, a little salsa in your Bible study, that was Apollos. He was your man. You know, these would be the people who would say, look, we, we understand Paul, but he's a little too heavy on the information end, and he's a little vanilla in his communication. But Apollos, man, he really stirs me up for the Lord. I love his passion, and he, I just can't track with Paul, but Apollos knows how to keep it interesting and really inspire us when we come together for a meeting. Now, others, thirdly, we're told in verse 12, we're saying, I am of Cephas or Peter. That is, we follow Peter. Now, this may have been the group that kind of took the approach. Hey, look, we're from the old school. Peter walked with Jesus from the beginning. He was around way before Paul, way before Apollos. He's one of the old guys from the foundation of the early church movement. He holds to the roots of things, how Judaism connects to Christianity. He honors tradition, and he's been around the longest, so he's got to be the most credible. He has to be the one who has the right answers for things. And therefore, their mind was kind of with him. Look, we need to stay connected to origins. And Peter is the root and origin of this movement. So we're sticking with him. None of this new stuff or none of these new guys. And now the ultimate last one, of course, verse 12. There was a fourth group. Others were saying, I am of Christ. Or the idea is just, look, we follow Christ. Now, quite honestly, this may have been actually the worst group of all, though it sounds pretty spiritual. This may have been the group that was kind of the most self-righteous and hyper-spiritual. The idea is we don't follow any man, nor do we need any man, nor do we need any church. We just follow Jesus. We don't need to be guided by some other man or instructed or taught nor do we need to be a part of a local church. We just follow Jesus himself. We like Jesus, but we don't like the church. And we don't need anybody to teach us. And this may have been the group kind of with a hyper-spiritual attitude. They didn't need a pastor, or they had no interest to some degree even in church experiences. They saw churches and pastors as kind of not necessary, kind of a very hyper-spiritual view of discounting those things Altogether. Now, you can see from verse 12, the believers in Corinth held clearly different opinions, and they all had different preferences, even on spiritual matters. Some liked different styles of teaching than others. Some had different preferences to approaches for ministry, some differences, maybe even some small doctrinal ideas. Some connected to specific pastors and leaders, where others 
kind of, you know, connected with others. Yet at the end of the day, the bottom line is these were really just all personal preferences. They were personal preferences among a group of Christians. And today, look, not much is different. Among the local church, and I've been a part of a few and even pastored a few now, the local church has and always will have different opinions about different subjects. There will always be different ideas that Christians hold on different matters, and that's totally normal. The problem is, is when those ideas or preferences or uh, kind of, I like this style versus that style, or I like doing things this way worth is that way, when those things become issues of division among a group of God's people, then those things start to become problematic. And that's what was happening at the church of Corinth. So Paul's instruction on this, how to correct the issue, is given to us in verse 10. How to resolve the relationship issues. Look what he says in verse 10. In light of these problems, he says, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice the first thing that Paul does is he addresses them what? As brethren. He uses a term of love. The word brethren is a family term. And no doubt Paul, being directed by the Holy Spirit, is intentionally trying to remind them as a church and a group of Christians that they are a family. That they're brethren, they're brothers and sisters in God's family. And therefore, they should relate to one another and function as brothers and sisters do in a family. That they share a bond of love and commitment and should always work to uphold that family connection that God had given to them. In a sense, Paul, you could kind of almost sense him saying, first and foremost, Look, don't forget your brothers and sisters in the midst of all your ideas, in the freedom to have differences of opinion. He's saying, look, please don't ever forget you're not enemies, you're family, you're brothers and sisters, and we need to stick together and support and care for one another like families do if we're going to survive out there in that world. We need each other. And that's why I think in verse 10 there, it says he pleads with them. The idea is he's begging them. Seriously consider, he's saying. Seriously consider what I'm saying. And then he says, for the name that is the honor and reputation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I'm begging you out of respect for the Lord. Out of respect for the Lord, he says, verse 10, that you not allow that there would be divisions among you. Again, could they hold difference of ideas? Of course. Is it okay to have a difference of conviction? Absolutely. Is it all right to have a different preference? Yes. But those things never should be a basis of contention or even ultimately just complete division at the end of the day. Relationships in God's heart are always more important than being right or having your own way. And sometimes we kind of tend to lose thought of that. That sometimes valuing relationship and not needing to prove that we're right or even have our own way in the situation is something we kind of neglect and we just blow past that. And sometimes we can become those 
who shoot our own wounded and cause some of the greatest damage in our relationships. Paul pleads with them in verse 10. He says to be joined together again in the same mind and judgment. And that word joined together in the original speaks of, which is interesting, mending a wound. Contention speaks of tearing, like the tearing of of the flesh in a wound or the tearing of a net. The word join, Paul uses the word there, mending. The idea is where something's been torn, you got to mend it. Where something has been separated, you got to work on a way to find healing and repair what's been torn. And when disputes and contentions have happened, for the sake of Christ, he's saying, and for the sake of love as a family, then he says, we have to focus on trying to find ways to mend those things and have the same mindset, which is this. At the end of the day, we all have the same agenda. It's serving Christ. Yes, we may have a different preference towards what kind of teaching we like or you know, what style of ministry we prefer or even differences of ideas and small ways of you know, little theological issues or, or differences of opinion on you know, different subjects, even socially in our culture. But Paul's saying we have to judge that what is important is what we do agree upon. The major things that we do agree upon are way more important than the secondary non-essential things that we may disagree about. And remember, our highest purpose is to serve the Lord. Our secondary purposes, sometimes we got to set those things aside. You know, one translation renders this, live in harmony with one another and don't allow there to become divisions among the church. You notice that? Don't allow. That is, we should fight. We should fight against division. That's what we should actually fight against. Not fight with one another. We should actually fight against, okay, look, we have a difference of opinion here. Maybe we shouldn't have this conversation any longer. And let's talk about things of the Lord instead of having a dispute over some social idea or theological issue. We're brothers, man. We're sisters. Let's focus on what we do agree on. Look, uniqueness and differences is wonderful. That's what makes the body of Christ diverse. We need uniqueness. It's good to have differences, yet we certainly can be mature enough to respect variation and realize the value that we can give each other latitude in these areas. You know, I'll tell you, I think these turbulent times in our culture, honestly, with this pandemic, have really led to so many different opinions. And then, of course, the current protests on different issues and all the political upheaval now with, you know, the, the election season. This is indeed testing the church. It really is testing the church in regards to struggles with disunity. And, and look, let me encourage you, perhaps recently differences of opinion and talking about ideas has led to tension and disputes. Let us, for Christ's sake, remembering we're spiritual family and that the honor of Christ matters more than anything else, recognize we need to be unified and stand together if we're going to overcome the true enemies, which is the devil and this fallen world system and the weakness of our own sinful flesh that we actually need to rally together as the body of Christ if we're going to be able to navigate this time. You know, it almost seems if Paul wanting to further validate the error of contentions and divisions, he says in verse 13, is Christ divided? The idea is though Jesus is unique from the Father and the Holy Spirit among the Trinity, is there division between Christ and his father or division between Christ and the Holy Spirit. They're different. 
But are there divisions? Of course not. There's complete unity. Or again, is Christ divided in the sense of the body of Christ? Is it the heart of Christ that the body of Christ be broken into different factions and little party spirits? Well, of course not. Jesus is the epitome of reconciliation. His whole life speaks of reconciliation, reconciling us who are separated to God and reconciling human relationships, Jew, Gentile, those that were greatly torn apart, bringing people back together in the unity of Christ. And even showing the error of elevating any man or spiritual leader, Paul says in verse 13 as well, he says, was Paul crucified for you? In other words, Paul says, look, I I wasn't crucified for you. Jesus was. Paul's saying, please don't ever allow me to be a source of someone's focus. He says, allegiance should be directed to Christ. And he says, was anyone baptized in my name? That was never Paul's intention to cause people to be baptized into the name of Paul or the first church of Paul in Corinth. That was never Paul's heart. And so Paul here is being the first to address this. And again, sadly, and we've all seen this before, sometimes people can become more focused among the church at large over perhaps the church that they attend or maybe a spiritual leader that they really like and connect with rather than focusing on Jesus. Look, we need to remember God uses different styles of churches to reach different people. God uses different kinds of ministries and even different teachers and pastors to connect and guide different people. And we have to be aware so that we don't overly emphasize our strong preference or perhaps connection to a particular church or person because that's a very limited view and a very immature perspective to fail to realize how big the body of Christ is. Look, I would say this, as long as there is sound doctrine, as long as there is no sin issue, as long as the main things are essential, let us beware of making little things of preference bigger deals than what they really need to be. Because we can get ourselves off track. You know, well, I don't like the way of doing that, or I don't agree with that, so I'm not participating. That's never a good place to be in our heart. I want to encourage you, learn to grow and be flexible. Appreciate differences. God is not in my little box. And sometimes God works in different ways at different times. And I've had to learn to be open and accept variation. 1 Corinthians 12, in fact, says there are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And God works in different ways. But it is the same God who does this work in all of us. You know, I have found with Christian maturity comes grace and flexibility and realizing God and life is much bigger than my own little ideas. And I think Paul here is trying to encourage them in light of this. He says, verse 14, going on, I thank God that I baptized none of you, he says, except Crispus and, and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, he says, actually, I I also baptized the household of Stephanus, but besides that, he says, I don't really know whether I baptized any other. So notice, Paul could only recall at this point a few people he water baptized in Corinth. Apparently, that means either other spiritual leaders in the church were helping do the water baptisms, or maybe even just other believers were baptizing fellow Christians when they got saved. But Paul's primary focus wasn't on water baptism. He's actually going to say it was on preaching the gospel and trying to see people get saved. 
and people come to meet Christ personally. It's almost as if you can sense there Paul was actually thankful that he only baptized a minimal number of people in the church in Corinth. He says, there's 15, he says, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. You can almost tell Paul's kind of saying there, you know, I'm actually thankful God only let me baptize a few people there in Corinth so that nobody would begin to think with credibility that I was trying to get people to be followers of me or that it was somehow about me. And again, I love this of Paul because a healthy spiritual leader should never seek to get people to focus too much on them or to put too much, uh, you know, uh, kind of allegiance to them or attention upon them. Instead, they should seek to help people keep their eyes on Jesus. Look, folks, I would say beware of any spiritual leader or church that operates in a manner where it makes it too much about them, where somehow there's almost kind of this undue focus on a main personality in the church, kind of like where they're the, you know, kind of like the lead actor in the show every week. Or somehow they're, you know, sort of the, uh, you know, star of, of the thing that goes on. And it kind of just captivates everyone's attention. And it kind of becomes more about them or that church or that thing than it does about Jesus. And just helping people to love and follow and look to Jesus. That is never, ever a healthy thing. We need to keep our eyes on the Lord because he's the only one that you or I should ever be captivated by. He's the only one that we should really be seeking after well having just mentioned doing water baptisms paul uses this as an occasion now to illustrate an interesting declaration which he makes in the first part of verse 17 and we'll just look at that because it connects to verse 18 and onward next week paul says in light of these things for christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel Paul says, the main thing God's called me to do, and I always remember this, he says, is to proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ and point people to the Lord to meet him, not necessarily to do the secondary thing, which is to water baptize people after they have met Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's very statement here in verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize but preach the gospel, is not Paul diminishing the value of water baptism. Certainly, water baptism has its importance. It's an act of obedience that we are commanded to observe as followers of Jesus Christ. He has commanded us to participate in water baptism. It is our way of outwardly identifying that we are a follower of Christ and verifying to other people what has happened inwardly inside of our heart and spirit when we receive the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the way God has given to us to display outwardly what has happened inwardly. And so when we are water baptized as an act of obedience, as a follower of Christ, we are fully identifying with the Lord and we are outwardly identifying our commitment to Christ and that we believe our life has been joined with him. We've been buried with Christ in that old life and resurrected back out of the water to connect with Jesus in a new way of living. But Paul's very statement here indicates that he did not believe clearly in verse 17 in what you may call baptismal regeneration. That is that people upon believing in Christ and then also being water baptized, that those who are baptized and believe are converted spiritually and enter into heaven. And sadly, there are some who do believe 
and those who actually do teach this. The practice of water baptism, they would say, confers the spiritual work of conversion to a soul, or it confirms and assures eternal salvation. Look, Paul the Apostle and the New Testament does not agree with that. In fact, if that were true, that baptism were necessary to confer or to confirm and assure salvation, Paul would never have said in verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And in the book of Acts, every time Paul converted someone, you would see him right away rushing the water baptize them if he believed it was essential. Look, salvation comes through embracing Christ alone, through faith alone. It is a gift of God. Water baptism is an outward work, and it would be adding a work to salvation. Should we do it? Absolutely. But baptism does not guarantee anyone's eternal salvation. Trusting in Christ does. And Paul validates that here in this verse. Look, let us never, as we consider this text, let us never let anything get in the way of what should remain primary and most important in our spiritual lives. Not my personality, not your preferences, not our stubbornness over ideas or rights. The mature person understands and accepts disagreements are a part of relationships. However, we don't make more of those disagreements than what is necessary because we value the relationship more than we do our preference or idea or proving our preference or idea is right and others are wrong. Look, ask God to help you as I should myself not to major on the minors and never be a divider and to value people and relationships over preferences, ideas, opinions, wanting to have our way in any situation. Let's.